G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show, wrapping up the month of October. October, Dave. My God, where has this year gone? Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty quick one, hasn't it? It sure has. I mean, Blink and I think the new series will be back with us, which is, which is amazing because it's been such a long wait. It has been, and I want to touch on that uh, a little bit later at the end of the news, but I perhaps should point out we are recording this episode a little bit earlier than we normally would. You're very kindly working around my schedule and we're recording on a Sunday morning between me being in Canberra and off to Taiwan, and I'm trying to find a Doctor Who reference to Taiwan and I haven't been able to, so <laughs> if any, anybody thinks of one, you know, maybe there's a big finish set in Taiwan, I don't know, let me know. Uh, so if we miss any sort of momentous news in the next 10 days... That's why. Yeah, exactly right. We could have recorded this normally any time up until next Friday, which is only a couple of days before the episode drops. So, look, guys, if a trailer has dropped or or Jodie Whittaker has resigned or something, who knows, and we don't talk about it, that's why. <laughs> that's right. But one thing we will be talking about today, Dave, and we had a vote on this with our good listeners out there, is the John Pertwee era. Yes, so I'm very excited by the topic because I've got a lot to say about John Pertwee. But I've got to say, Rob, I'm also really excited by just how well that concept of polling our listeners actually worked. We put forward four nominees, four doctors we thought we had something to say something about. And I would have been happy if we'd got sort of 30 or 40 votes. And we got a lot more. (laughs) We sure did. We had 124 votes on Twitter, Dave. (laughs) Which was incredible. Yeah. Uh, 44% of those were for Pertwee, 32% for McCoy, 13% for Eccleston, and 11% for Tennant. Uh, Yes, which I think is certainly not a reflection of the favouritism of the Doctors amongst the people who voted or the listeners, but I guess maybe just the Doctors that they want to hear discussed more. I don't think that only 11% of our audience likes David Tennant, but I think maybe there is a sense of, well, what can we say about David Tennant that hasn't been sent in the last five years, whereas John Pertwee perhaps hasn't been covered all that much. Exactly. And for those of you quickly doing the math in your head as you sit there uh, on the train or drive along to work, uh, 44% of 124 votes is about 54.56 votes for Pertwee, ahead of about 39.68 for McCoy. So even based on additional votes we were getting on the Facebook group and through email and whatnot, it couldn't bridge the gap. Pertwee was our winner by far although I do want to give a shout out to some of the folks on Facebook like uh, Shane McCoy who did vote for Sylvester and Paolo De Monte who said Eccleston is a totally underrated but great doctor Mark Cockrum our good friend the human palindrome Dave said he'd like to hear our thoughts on Eccleston Uh, but Christopher Bryant jumped in on Facebook and said I think Pertwee is possibly the least discussed of the four right now Eccleston has a book out McCoy has an anniversary and Tennant is Tennant (laughs) (laughs) That's not a bad summary. So yeah, look, I really enjoyed that process and we're certainly not going to do it every episode, but I think maybe a little bit more we will throw some of our options open to the listeners. Absolutely. And we won't be doing any mini topics this month, folks. We'll rip into some news in a moment and then we're straight into Pertwee. So get ready. Uh, Before we move in, though, a couple of little notes for the listeners. First of all, as you may be aware, the Doctor Who show's hot take uh, review slash discussion slash analysis of the Joker movie is now out and live on your feeds with myself and Richard. We had a, a good half hour chat about what we thought about that movie and it it's less a review, it really is just more a two guys who've just seen the movie and going, what did we think? What was that all about? What does it mean? A real sort of discussion. So please check that out. 
Yeah, I quite enjoyed hearing that. I still haven't seen the film yet, Dave, but obviously I listened to it as I gave it the final production before it went out to the people. And I've got to say, I didn't feel too spoiled by what you spoke about, even though you did do some spoilerific things in it. I, I was still quite keen to see the movie. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. And another podcast that's out, uh, that is isn't ours, is there's an episode of 42 to Doomsday that's come out in the last week or so that's caused quite a stir. Now, Rob, you first raised this issue of some of the Jodie Whittaker merchandise not selling quite as well as some of the classic merchandise on our show, didn't you? I did, specifically the uh, Big Chief 12-inch deluxe figure. These are very expensive, very high-end figures. They've already made uh, quite a few of the Doctors, like the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, uh, the 1st and the 4th, and they plan to do uh, all of them over time. And they were they they were sort of crowdfunding for it, saying, "Look, we want to get 500 pre-orders and such." And as time went on, they were nowhere near the figure uh, of 500. And they eventually had to drop it down to about 350, as I recall. I'm sort of stretching back in my memory now. And they still didn't get to 350, uh, but I think they still went ahead uh, and said, "Oh yeah, look, we'll just do it anyway." <laughs> I think they might have got 320 or something. Yeah. So the guys at 42 to Doomsday have taken this question about what's happening in the merchandise world and rather than just speculating or giving opinions they've gone and interviewed the owner of a collectible shop in melbourne who actually sells this merchandise and buys collections and deals with doctor who licensees all the time and and also richard the often contributor to this podcast who is a very active amateur collector and they've actually gone to these guys you know particularly aaron who owns the shop and said tell us what you're seeing in real conversations with licensees now i won't go any further because it's their podcast and it's their news to talk about but they have some information and discuss their conclusions and listeners if you're interested in what's happening in the world uh, i will encourage you to check out 42 to doomsday hear what they say and then draw your own conclusions yeah, absolutely. I think coming from someone who's actually in that retail space and can talk to ordering things and having people come into the store and such, I think it's very powerful stuff. Just for, on one Jodie Whittaker example, the, the way he uh, said, well, I ordered X number of these figures just before Christmas, they all sold out. And then I couldn't sell a dozen Jody figures to exactly the same customers, you know, <laughs> not long yeah. after. And it's like, well, it's the same customers. It's the same, same time frame. What's the difference between those other figures you're selling and the Jody figure? I, I don't know. Draw your own conclusions, as we always say, folks. Absolutely. Shall we crack into the news? Yes, let's do that now. So in the last week on YouTube, we were able to see the University of Central Lancaster's production of Mission to the Unknown, the Missing Hartnell episode. Now, this was a group of film slash drama students at the university who for their project basically did a recreation as close to authentic as possible of Mission to the Unknown. It's now on YouTube. Rob, have you had a chance to watch it? I have, Dave. My uh, my umbrella thoughts on it are it looks really good. It looks as close as I guess you could to recreating 60s television. Uh, Most of the performances are quite good too. There's probably one or two dodgy performances which kind of pull it down a little for me but overall, great. Yeah, there are a couple of moments in there where you know you realise that these are not fully developed professional actors. They're students learning their craft and I have no doubt there's a few moments they would look Mm -hmm. at and go, ooh, I can learn from that. Uh, But overall, yeah, it's really enjoyable to watch. It's It's been done really lovingly in a really genuine sort of attempt to capture 
what a piece of 1960s Doctor Who would have looked like, what it would have felt like. So they haven't done modern directorial flares. They've really tried to keep it in tune with the style of the time. The makeup and the special effects and everything are very much in tune with the style of the time. Uh, the one thing that I thought was really not in tune with the style of the time and is a big disappointment is they got Nick Briggs to do the Dalek voices. Mm. Now, a couple of them he actually does do a pretty good impression of a 1960s Dalek, but at least one, I think it's this Dalek Supreme, is so obviously a Nick Briggs Dalek. It's just, <laughs> why does Nick Briggs have to do every voice of everything in Doctor Who? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so that was a negative for me, but otherwise... A very positive experience. Absolutely. I mean, on Nick Briggs, they may have got him in to give the piece a bit of a, a push, you know, marketing-wise, just to get it out there. You know, oh, look, we've got Nick Briggs, the voice of the Daleks, doing the Dalek voices, even though it doesn't quite fit, as you say. Yeah, look, maybe it, it's a decision I wouldn't have made, but look, it's a minor decision uh, in what's otherwise a very good production. Uh, at the moment, it has got, as of time of recording, 139,000 views on YouTube, which is pretty good. And it does come with its own making of special by a friend of the podcast and Australian Doctor Who amateur contributor. He does a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of good internet content, loves the heart and lyrics, so two thumbs up from me, and that is Josh Snares. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've seen the making of uh, video too, and like a lot of his videos, including the more recent ones, the production values on it are just fantastic. You know, he is very, very good at turning out videos. Yeah, yes, when I say amateur, I mean amateur simply in the terms of he doesn't get to do this professionally on, and you know doesn't get a contract. In terms of content, it is professional content. Yeah, agree. Dave, I've got an interesting one here. This was something that ran in the sun, uh, so you know it's going to be quality. Under the headline, <laughs> <laughs> under the headline, we made history. Doctor Who star hits back at criticism. The show has become too politically correct and reveals the backlash excites the team. I saw this, I thought, holy hell, who's who said this? Is it Bradley Walsh? Is it Mandeep Gill? Could Jody have actually said this? This is quite the headline. Unfortunately, as we know in the era of clickbait, headlines don't tell the full story. And this Doctor Who star is Hamza G. Tua. Do you remember Hamza G. Tua, Dave? <laughs> Look, if you told me who they played, I might, but I don't recognise the name. <laughs> right. He is the fella from Demons of the Punjab who is getting married. Uh, and then I guess in the episode gets uh, shot later on. Yeah, okay. So, look, I do remember his performance. And if you'd forced me to guess, I would have guessed it was from that episode. Because it, it did ring a bell, but I didn't remember mm. exactly who he was. Uh, that's okay. I think that of all the episodes in the most recent series that really did make a genuine point it was Rosa and it was Demons of the Punjab because they were dealing with genuinely controversial and interesting topics where to, to not dive into that would have been a folly so I think if anybody can say that he can I just think it's a shame that the tabloids are still dragging out this whole is Doctor Who too politically correct or not stuff which really only is done to wind up fans and as you say get people clicking on the bait yeah that's right and and the headline is is so misleading because what hamza is really talking about is his episode i mean that's that's all that is his to talk to because that's the only episode he was on yeah and so he's talking with particular reference to demons of the punjab and saying there's always going to be people with opinions saying we don't see it this way and we don't believe that but i felt really confident about it and really excited to be part of it and make a little bit of history and that's fair because that's what they did with that episode and he said i remember the creative team were very much excited by the fact that they knew 
there would be people who would not be as excited. They would want it to be just the way Doctor Who was before. All of which are fair comments, but, you know, when you dig beyond the headline, he is just talking about that particular episode, and he isn't one of the main cast, uh, so it is a bit of a beat-up. Uh, and as you say, Demons of the Punjab was a, was a really great episode. In fact, I think that could have been a pure historical. I don't think they needed those weird aliens flitting about in the woods. Yeah, I agree with all your points. Demons of the Punjab was, along with Kablam, one of, one of my two favourites of the series. And I remember saying at the time in our Hot Take review, when I was a kid and I first, well, not watched, but read The Highlanders, uh, I was then inspired to go and learn more about the Battle of Culloden and about Scottish history. And if a kid today watching the BBC and watching Doctor Who watches Demons of the Punjab and says, I want to learn more about the history of Imperial India and the the, the um, partition of India, well, job done. And that's what Doctor Who's been doing for 50-something years. So that's not political correctness. That's just educating people about history. Yeah, agree 100% there. Now, Rob, as I'm sure you're aware... Every year, for many, many years, the BBC does their Children in Need evening, or their, their telethon, where they get lots of donations for, for charity and for starving kids and, in Africa and various other things. And, you know, Lenny Henry's been a big part of it and um, all, all those sort of things. And usually they get a whole bunch of celebrities in a room and record a really bad single to try and make a bit of extra cash for the cause. What they're doing this time, though, is they're not releasing one single with all the celebrities. They're releasing an album where all the celebrities get to sing a song. So there's 11 tracks on this album. It includes such luminaries as Olivia Colman, and there is a law that has actually passed in the UK where you cannot produce anything without involving Olivia Colman these days. (laughs) Uh, Jim Broadbent, who, of course, known to Doctor Who fans for the Curse of Fatal Death... uh, he did several Blackadders and a whole whole range of you know, comedy stuff. Uh, somebody called David Tennant, who is doing a performance of Shine On on Leith, of course, by a band he's a big fan of. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter. But they've released a single earlier to sort of get a bit of publicity about this out, and that was Jodie Whittaker singing Yellow by Coldplay. Yeah, look, I, I saw this news. I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. And I had to seek it out. I, I sought it out and listened to it. And I thought, you know, that's not bad. Jody can hold a tune. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knew? Although I guess, you know, maybe many actors and actresses do have sort of vocal training for the stage and stuff. So maybe it shouldn't be a particular surprise. But it was quite nice to hear her sing this song. My, my only complaint is about halfway through, it does sort of merge into the Coldplay version. I think it gets very big and bombastic and big guitars and stuff. I think I would have liked it to have stayed sort of mellow and, and quieter like it, it sort of begins. But that's just me. <laughs> Yeah, look, her voice does as well particularly suit, I think, the Coldplay style of music. So it was a very good choice. Um, I'm starting to sound like Simon Cowding, a very good choice of song. You know? um, but it was, it was a very good choice of song. And she did hold it perfectly well. I thought it was very nice. I must admit, Coldplay is one of those bands where if you say to me, do you know the song X? I'm like, I, I don't know. If you play it for me, I do. Because and, and, Coldplay, I think, particularly has very weird titles for their songs. Oh, and uh, albums, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as soon as it started playing, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that song, and, and I, and I recognised it. Uh, yeah, it, it is very nice. There has been a bit of a fan movement to try and get it to top the charts. I don't know that's going to happen, but it did debut uh, in the 30s, at 33, I think, which for a charity single by and somebody who isn't known for their singing, that's a pretty good thing. 
Yeah, look, um, it, it, it could still go higher in the charts. It is fairly easy to manipulate the charts today than it was in, say, the mid-80s or even the mid-90s where people were still buying a lot of singles. Now you can you can buy, uh, uh, like a fan base can buy a small amount of singles and push some songs quite high in the charts mm. uh, because simply not a lot of singles are sold anymore. Yeah, look, that's true. That's true. So uh, she's doing very well and I think... Even as we discussed earlier in Tangent that some of the Jodie Whittaker merchandise related to Doctor Who maybe is not performing as well as we would like, I think this demonstrates that there is no lack of love for Jodie Whittaker as a person and as an actress. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, to round things out, we've got another semi-Jodie story. But first I'll ask you, Dave, question without notice. What is your opinion on honorary doctorates? Uh, I think that they are a worthy endeavour that can be used by academia to recognise genuine contributions in their field that are often abused for PR purposes. Yes, I am kind of in line with that. And we have an example here where I think it might be edging more towards the PR sort of side of things. The headline from the Radio Times, Doctor Who star Jodie Whittaker is now officially a doctor, and so is Chris Chibnall. And I thought, aha, uh-huh. I looked at the subheading and it says the cast and crew of the opening episode of Series 11 are receiving honorary doctorates from Sheffield Hallam University. And I thought, ooh, that's a wee bit over the top. I mean, to take the doctor and the showrunner and give them a doctorate each, that's, that's pretty big and it's kind of tending towards PR. But to give the whole cast and crew a doctorate from that first episode, that just seems to be, and I'm going to say it, Dave, taking the piss. Yeah, that does seem quite over the top and quite, quite, quite cheapening the idea. As you said, you can make a good argument for Jodie Whittaker herself, or certainly I think Chris Chibnall as a, as a writer and a contributor in terms of the sort of stuff that he's pushed, I think there's an argument there. I don't know I'm sold on it, but I could hear the argument. But uh, everybody else... No, I'm not sure. And look, I'm reminded of Billy Connolly talking about when he got his honorary doctorate and sort of how ridiculous he thought it was. But he was happy to do it just because his wife, Pamela Stevens, of course, did earn a, an actual doctorate in psychology, I think. <laughs> yes. And he and you know, he sort of you know, watched her spend years and years doing this doctorate and putting it all together and he just sort of, you know, I'm just popping out this afternoon to go get my doctorate and oh hello, it's Dr. Billy Connolly here. How are you? You know, do you like my doctorate? you we've both got a doctorate, sweetie. Um yeah. So uh yeah, it's um yeah, I'm not sure what I'm what to think about that one, but no, yeah. no. Look, Chibnall popped up and said Doctor Who is a massive team effort, so it's particularly special that this citation is for the whole cast and crew. But but honestly, Chris, if I was on the crew, I'd be a bit embarrassed to be given a doctorate for that. It, it, it just doesn't sit well with me at all. Yeah, that is a little bit weird. Now, Rob, you said we're having no mini-topics this week, but I just wanted to ask you a question that is kind of half news and half mini-topic. Sure. Because this, of course, is our October episode and so we're starting to plan the next few months and we've got our topic for next month sorted and usually our December episode would be held over to either be the review or or in part the hot take discussion of the Christmas or New Year special. Now Rob, do we know yet are we getting a Christmas or New Year special this December slash January? Look the short answer is no we don't. Um, You know the BBC line all along has been Doctor Who will return in 2020. 
which to me was, well, if they do another New Year's special, that is in 2020. And so my thoughts have always been, if they're going to do a special to kick things off, it'll be a New Year's Day special because that's in 2020. However, recently a, a bunch of articles have been appearing where people are saying, oh, we're going to get a Christmas episode. I don't think they're based on anything except fans just wanting a Christmas episode. <laughs> and I, again, I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know what's going on. I don't think there's anything behind them. I think, if anything, it's a New Year's Day episode in 2020. When do you think we'll be able to call that as being a definitive yes? Because obviously we'll get an announcement. Or at what point, if we don't get an announcement, do we start to go, maybe it's not happening? I would like to give it another month. That'll put us in late November. Yep. Uh, I think a month out from the Christmas ep, if you're not saying there's a Christmas ep, there's something seriously wrong with uh, your PR department. (laughs) Yeah, or alternatively, if they make an announcement that the first episode of the new season will be on plucking a day out of the air, April the 7th, and therefore that would imply that there is nothing in between. That would also confirm it. So, yeah, watch this space. I think this is a real genuine question out there we don't know the answer to. I I think your instinct is probably correct, but maybe they're going to launch the new season with a big premiere at the start of the season and don't feel the need for a Christmas or New Year special. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely agree. So, Rob, it's time to talk about the third Doctor, John Pertwee. Yes, and I'm very excited to be doing this, I've got to say, Dave. Yeah, let me say right from the offset, although now as a cynical old adult, my favourite Doctor is William Hartnell, when I was a kid, right through to being a teenager... John Pertwee was my favourite Doctor, and I still have a huge fondness and a huge regard for him and his era. And a lot of that does stem from the fact that we, I think as Australians, particularly of our sort of vintage, just grew up on watching John Pertwee all the time. He was repeated regularly. Most years you get at least some run of John Pertwee's stories, so we saw them all growing up. But they are also just such fun, diverse interesting stories and look there's a lot I'm going to talk about in terms of the production but yeah I'm coming at this era from a place of real real fondness yeah I'm I'm a little bit different here Dave as delighted as I am to be doing this let me explain that Pertwee is the doctor I couldn't get into for the longest time the longest time okay yeah Um, it's weird though because I've loved the demons since I was a kid Day of the Daleks was one of the first Doctor Who stories I ever saw, BBC video-wise, and really enjoyed. And yet the overall era and Pertwee himself never made a dent in my affections, to the point where about, I don't know, four or five years ago, I was talking to Doc Whom over at Diddly Dum, and we cooked up this idea we called Project Pertwee, and I was going to go and watch every episode, and then he and I would talk about it, and, you know, he would try and get me into Pertwee, (laughs) you know, it was that bad. And it's only been over these last five years that I've gone back and watched a lot of his stuff again and gotten into it. In fact, after watching two or three seasons, I thought, you know, good grief, I I can be a bit of an ass to people if they deserve it. And I like wine and cheese. And at the time, I was tooling around in this open-top car and I like gadgets. And I thought, oh my God, I am Pertwee. (laughs) 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 Maybe familiarity is breeding contempt. I don't know. But, uh, look, Pertwee is well up in my estimations these days, but it's it's hard, though, isn't it? There are now 13 Doctors, 14 if we include Hurt, 
uh, more if we include the other sort of fantasy ones that Big Finish has thrown around. It makes lists kind of hard to do now. So when I say Pertwee is up there in my estimations, I mean, I'm not putting a number on it. If, if a Doctor is at number 8, what does it mean for the Doctor at number 11? And how much better are they for the Doctor at number 4? You know, it used to mean a lot back in the day when we only had 4 or 5 Doctors. So now I just say, look, Pertwee's up there, but I'm not going to put a number on him. Yeah, it's really interesting that you talk about that journey because having been involved in fandom now for... 25 or more years must know, must be must be 30 something years yeah. never mind a long time going back to going going back to the 80s as a very small boy uh, i could kind of remember particularly coming out of the uk the real ebbs and flows of the pertwee popularity when i was first involved in fandom in the late 80s early 90s in the uk the pertwee era was kind of regarded as this mythic classic era because many of the people who were opinion makers had been kids during the Pertwee era and it was the new colour era and it hadn't been repeated in the UK so it was just this sort of mythic sort of thing then the new sort of hard-edged reviewers people like the Paul Cornells came along and they sort of started to watch a few of these Pertwees on VHS and copies went around and they started to find all the flaws and it became kind of trendy to bash Pertwee and Mm. in the late 90s it was a real sort of thing to sort of show you, you, you you're cool and you're edgy by bashing Pertwee and then I think as things sort of came back to an equilibrium there has been a, a, a growth in regard for him his era though I do concede is not a perfect one by any means I think that what the team does we'll talk about the team in, right, right in a moment what the team does is they do push the quality of the show up I think the highs are higher than we've seen before I think the average is up in some ways, particularly compared to the Trouton era. But it still has some quite low lows that come in there. And it's really not until Hinchcliffe that those lows are sort of raised a, a bit as well. And yeah, shall we get on with talking about the, uh, the era? Let's do it. So when we talk about the Pertwee era, I think we really need to be saying that we're talking about the Pertwee Let's Dicks era. Because this is the most stable production team we get Basically, once uh, Sherman hands over to Let's Officially with the Silurians, Pertwee's second story, you get a producer for five full seasons, the same script editor for five full seasons, the same lead actor. Uh, Joe Grant is there for three of those seasons. You get regulars like Nicholas Courtney playing the Brigadier throughout those seasons. There is a huge stability. And what's also really clear is that the producer, the script editor, and the lead actor all got on and all were working together to create a direction and a vision and an outcome. And I think that's something that really has to be said right at the top and really defines this era. Absolutely agreed. I mean, you contrast it with New Who. We've only had, uh, well, three showrunners and one of them's only done one series so far. But when you hear some of the behind-the-scenes stories and look at why certain series uh, in the modern era have gone awry, it's because the production team's been in disarray. It has a massive effect on what happens on screen. Absolutely. Uh, You certainly got a lot of chopping and changing in the Trouton era, which I think comes through then. In the 80s, okay, you get the stability of J&T and Eric Saywood for a long period together, but with different Doctors, and let's face it, not getting on and not working towards the same vision. I mean, in the Colin Baker era, the producer, the script editor, and the lead actor were all working on their own different visions and not remotely in sync. So this is really important. I think um, the Hitchcliffe-Holmes-Tom Baker era does it again, but again only for three years. 
So this is a really big, stable part of the show. And look, I'm not somebody who assesses everything by ratings. I don't think that you can judge a show by ratings alone, but it is the era that locks Doctor Who into being a long-running cult classic, but not, 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 not cult in the niche sense, cult in the everyone in the UK is watching this. It's a big part of the zeitgeist. And over the course of its five seasons, basically the Pooh era adds half a million viewers every year. And overall, they build the ratings up by 2.5 million. It ends up averaging just below 9 million viewers. So season 11 averages just under 9 million viewers. Its highs are obviously much higher. It's getting 10s. It's getting 11s occasionally. Uh, It gets into the top 20 on a much more regular basis than it ever has before and sets up the Hinchcliffe era to start getting 10s and 11s regularly. Yeah, that paints a very good picture, I think, Dave, because back in those days, there there wasn't much to watch on uh, UK television. There weren't many channels, so you, no. you weren't really spoiled for choice. Uh, so in some ways, some of these big viewing figures that old Doctor Who episodes used to get were sort of born of that to some degree. You know, it was only one of a few options people had. But at the same time, the flip side of that coin is what you've just said. To grow the audience year on year is still quite significant, regardless of what choices people have. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm less interested, I think, in the number as I am in the growth of the number. To add 2.5 million and basically go from sort of low sixes to high eights across the course of five years is a really good thing. There's not a lot of shows that actually grow five years in a row. They, they might peak and then sort of start to drift off, but that's a really good sign of how well it connected with the public. And part of why it connected with the public is obviously John Pertwee himself, someone who I don't think a lot of people in 1969 would have been expecting to be the Doctor in the new season. No, I mean, this guy known for being, well, a, a comedian, Dave, doing comedic sort of turns on radio and things and, and in film. You know, how could he possibly play this serious Doctor character? Uh, and yet he comes on and plays a very serious Doctor, and, and it's a real sort of turn. It reminds me of when other comedians have gone and done roles that are, you know, perhaps more serious in nature, and they're often very good at it. Yeah, I think about John Pertwee's guest-starring appearance in the Avengers episode from Venus with Love, where he's only got a small part, but they've clearly gone for an actor who can do comedy, not in the sense of uh, slapstick and sort of funny voices, but just who has this wonderful, inscrutable comic timing and can throw himself around and do that sort of thing. But then in the Navy Lark, which he did for radio, he's doing lots of very radio-style comic voices. Uh, but that, that sense of performance, I think, is what he really brings to the role. And he makes the Doctor someone that you have to watch and you you, you find interesting. Oh, absolutely. And his, his Doctor has a, a kind of an arc. I mean, we talk about more modern Doctors, like what they tried to do with Colin Baker, or what they did more successfully with Peter Capaldi. I think that the John Pertwee Doctor has a bit of an arc too. Uh, season seven is very very serious and his doctor gets a a bit more fun and open perhaps as the years go on there is and the production team did very deliberately transition both him as a character in terms of the way he related to his companions and he got different sorts of companions that brought out different aspects of his personality but also the way that his doctor would 
uh, go. When when they inherited the show, Sherman had made this decision to strand the Doctor on Earth. And, and Letts and Dix have said on record they, they're not particular fans of that decision and that it left them with limited story capacity. But they didn't just reverse it. They then decided, well, let's have this thing where the Doctor starts with his whole first season on Earth and then in his next season he gets away from Earth once then he gets away from Earth a couple of times. Then in his fourth season, he gets his ability to travel back and he's going to be back off Earth on a regular basis, uh, but brings it back home again for his fifth season. So that is very deliberate. The way that they bring regular characters in and out is very deliberate. This, this is a very planned era. Question without notice, because I'm not sure it'll pop up naturally in the rest of our discussion. The Time Lords exiling him to Earth. Did you ever find that quite weird in the way that, you know, they acknowledge that he meddles in the affairs of other planets, so they strand him on the planet he seems to meddle most in? <laughs> the answer is no, because because I came to the show through the Pearl era, that just seemed to me to be natural. Right, okay. And, and then when I sort of did see the War Games and I got exactly what was going on it, it again seemed perfectly natural to me that if you're going to strand this guy anywhere at least do it where he kind of enjoys hanging out yeah that well that's a very kind sort of way to do it i i just find find yeah, it okay. funny that he meddles a lot on earth so here we'll strand you on the planet you meddle most in but then i mean you go through the era and one of the big tropes of the era and the excuse they use regularly to get the doctor off earth is the Time Lords do want to interfere and they can't be seen to do it, but if we just sort of quietly send the Doctor along, mm. then uh, then that, that's okay because, I mean, Colony in Space, Curse of Peladon, the Mutants, um, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple. There are a number of ones where he goes off on a mission for the Time Lords. Yeah, true. Uh, so, Rob, I just want to talk a little bit about what it is that Barry Letts does for Doctor Who because I think that this is the era where we start to become that golden, important part of the, the UK's television landscape. I think Dalek Mania has come and gone, and that was important, but this is where it becomes a real thing. So a couple of points I just want to make, if you'll indulge me for a moment, please. Mm, sure. One of the things we have to mention is the budget. In the past, Doctor Who has always struggled with its budget, and the budget at the BBC is obviously derived from uh, television licences. So in the UK, if you want to have a television, there's basically a hypothecated tax, which is the TV licence, and you pay that tax to own a TV and it goes to the BBC and the BBC uses it to make whatever they want to make. Mm. Of course, at the point where the John Perwier is coming out, colour television is coming on board. And the licence fee for a colour television is not just a little bit more, you know, 10% more than a black and white one. It is significantly more than it is for a black and white television, significantly more. So what that means is, as people are over the five years of the Perwey era switching over from a black and white set to a colour set, they are paying a significantly higher licence fee, which means money is just pouring into the BBC. They're still making the same number of hours of programming. And, and yes, there are some other costs involved with the whole colour production, but suddenly the BBC's budget increases significantly. So what that means is that when Barry Letts goes over budget by 30% at the end of season seven, Rather than the BBC saying, well, that's a real problem, we haven't got the money, they're like, that's fine, we'll just up your budget by that much, that's fine, you know, have a bit more cash. <laughs> so at the end of season eight, he ups it by, he goes over by 30%. That's fine, we'll just increase your budget. And this just happens across the five years. <laughs> he basically doubles Doctor Who's budget over five years because the BBC can, can afford it. Uh, the problem that comes down the future is that when Philip Hinchcliffe does the same, uh, most people are already on colour sets, the economy's not going as well, inflation becomes a problem mm -hmm. later, and so there isn't the money to compensate. 
But Barry Letts says, you know, he found Doctor Who a poor program and left it a very rich one. And it was a very well-budgeted program by the end of his era. So he was kind of the Augustus of Doctor Who. You know, Augustus found yes. Rome uh, in, uh, what was it, in, in, in wood? In, in clay and left it in marble, yes. <laughs> that, that's the one, yes. <laughs> that's right, he, he really was. Letts is also very, very canny at how he does the production. He, and I don't know whether this was him and Sherman or a combination of them both, but they cut Doctor Who back from being sort of 50, 45, 50 episodes a year to 25, 26, which yeah. means you're making less program with more money. And also between them, Sherman does the seven-parters. Let's and Dicks don't like that. They pull it back all the way to six-parters. But again, this idea of if you're only making five stories a year, because you've got three six-parters usually and two four-parters or some combination thereof, you can spend more per story. You can amortize things across the uh, uh, the cost across the, the course of a story. So a six-parter has more budget. Let's is very good at how he uses his location filming to have expensive stories and cheaper stories. Um, you look at something like the Carnival of Monsters, the way that is designed is there are two recording blocks and all of the cast is only required for one recording block. You're either on Interminer or you're on the ship and Mm. the two never meet. So you only have to hire the cast for half the time. Yeah. And look, I just want to say they really go to town with this uh, episode sort of situation in season seven particularly. I mean, we think of... Uh, seasons that have four stories as being like something that the McCoy era did. Oh my God, Doctor Who's dying. It's only got four stories in a season. But this first Pertwee series uh, only had four stories in it too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I I think as much as I love those stories, and I I do think that the seven parts do force the production team, particularly the writers, to add more and really add a a level of depth to a story that otherwise wouldn't be there. Uh, you know that, that that is very long I think you do need more variety in a season the final Barry Letts point I want to make right at the top here and this is a Letts Terence Dick's point is he's also the first to really get this idea of a formal season with a big opener and a mm-hmm. big closer so you look at the openers they have okay Spearhead was Derek Sherman but that's the new Doctor and it's an alien invasion that's a big deal uh, you then get to season 8 they have the launch of the big new arch rival for the Doctor with a Radio Times cover and everyone's going to tune in to see who this master guy is and what's going on. Season 9, they bring the Daleks back because that's how you open a new season. You get the Daleks in. Mm -hmm. Season 10, they open with three Doctors. Yeah. Uh, Season 11, not quite the same. I think they would have used a bit of the Liz Sladen casting to, to get in there, but certainly for those first four seasons, they've got that big, exciting premiere story that is going to get the viewers in and then they end with a big unit family exciting adventure that sort of brings in everything together the demons the time monster the green death and planet of the spiders all have that sense of right we're going to wrap the season up wrap the themes up and have all the cast you love back here so again stuff that we are doing now in doctor who let's really was the pioneer of yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look across those uh, opening stories, it's very true. When you get to season 11, gosh, wouldn't it, that have been good if it opened with Invasion of the Dinosaurs or something? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably the only misstep in terms of having big, uh, big openers. But uh, we're not talking about season 11. We're going to go back, I guess, Dave, to uh, season 7. We will. So what we're going to do, Rob, is we're going to talk about each season briefly interspersed with a more general topic. Season 7, I think most listeners will know 
is my favourite season. So therefore, I might hand over to you to give us your first thoughts. Yeah, well, look, uh, my first thoughts kicked off a few minutes ago where I, I commented that this is a season from the classic era that only has four stories to it. And those stories are all, bar the first one, particularly long stories, which may be one of the reasons why I found it hard to get into the Pertwee era initially. But they are very strong stories. Spearhead from Space in particular. When you look at that, all shot on film, grab the Blu-ray, folks, if you don't have it. It is absolutely fantastic. It feels like a television film from that era. I won't go as far to say it's cinematic, but it feels very much like a shot for TV movie. Uh, I think it's just wonderful. Thumbs up. Silurians, I know you love it, Dave. I'm not as fond of it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's it's quite good. Ambassadors of Death I've always had a thing for, and Inferno is a stone-cold classic. So although there's only four stories here, I am pretty wrapped with this season too. Oh, well, look, it is my favourite season because it has got four, in my view, classic stories. I think they are all utterly brilliant. They are all very different. And you can see in this one, the production team is very quickly trying to grapple with this idea of, what do we do when we have the Doctor stranded on Earth? Uh, famously, it was Malcolm Hulk who said to Terran Sticks, well, that's a terrible idea. You've only got two plot lines, alien invasion or mad scientist. Mm. So very quickly, yes, there are a couple of alien invasions in there and there is a mad scientist in there, but very quickly they said to Mac Hulk, right, will you give us your, your, your twist? And his twist is the aliens were here first. They get to Inferno and they say, well... Let's not have it on the Earth. Let's have it on a parallel Earth. Mm. Uh, even Ambassadors of Death, the alien invasion turns out not to be an alien invasion at all. And if anything, we are the aggressors. So it is very innovative. Uh, I love Liz Shaw, and we'll talk about the companions in their own little segment shortly, but I do love Liz Shaw. I love the way the Brigadier is used here. I love the way Unit is portrayed here. But again, it has this feel as though money has been spent, and it looks really good Spearhead from Space, I agree, is the standout. There were problems in terms of the production with this one, and where some other producers may have just rolled over, Derek Sherwin, who was still the producer for this story, did say, well, if you can't give me this, this, and this, give me a whole bunch of film, and I'll go to it all on location. And the BBC said, you're crazy, you can't do that. He said, you yeah, watch me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, and it's gorgeous. Oh, it, it is unbelievable. You know, the, the first time I sat down and seriously watched that, I, I just couldn't believe how good it looked. Yeah, absolutely. So look, a lot of love from me for this season. I think Pertwee is very different and very interesting. He's not yet the lovable uncle that we kind of think of by the end of his run, but he is, I think, for a nerdy young boy, that very interesting sort of into tech and into gadgets and into science and, and really pushes that love of science in a way that I think is really effective. The downside of the season, of course, is that, look, in Australia, it wasn't a problem. Seven-part story, that's one and a half weeks. Who cares? In the UK, having to watch a story for almost two months to get a conclusion, mm. I can see where that would be a problem. Oh, absolutely. It's incredibly long. And, you know, I, I know you can sit through them quite easily, Dave, but there are times where I'm watching them and I'm thinking, oh, my God, how many more episodes to get to the end? Yeah, look, I understand that. Especially on limited sets as well. Yeah, look, that's true as well. I mean, I think the seven parters do allow for a lot more location filming, but you're right. They do get quite 
dull sometimes if they don't have a twist in them. We'll move then to our first general topic, and that is UNIT, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. I am a big fan of UNIT, and I think the reason why UNIT works well in the Perwi era, better than it does, I think, anywhere else in the series, particularly the new series, and I'm, and I'm not saying that to bash it, I will, I will come back to that point, is that it is being written and produced by people who in many cases have served in the military, or if they haven't, they are students of the military, like Douglas Camfield, or they're people who are around the Christmas table would have been parents, uncles, aunts, grandmas, grandfathers who served in World War One, World War Two, or did um, national service, that sort of thing. So people get the military. And and I contrast that, again, not to have a, have, have a go at, but simply to make the point, most of the people who write for and produce New Who, I expect have got almost no experience, certainly first-hand experience of the military. And as somebody who has served in the military in the past, mm. that really does show to me. But it shows here how well it works. The Brigadier is a really good character who has a bit of personality. He's also very much a typical up-and-coming military officer. Yates is very much the young, sort of upper-middle-class, maybe junior aristocratic younger son who went went along to Sandhurst to become an officer. Benton is the guy you could imagine leaving school at 15 and just joining the army as a private and working his way up to sergeant and, mm-hmm. well, he gets to warrant officer by the, by the Tom Baker era. It falls down a little bit in terms of the fact that on Doctor Who's budget, we don't quite have the cast to show a realistic military organisation. You know, there, there would be significant layers between a brigadier and a captain, for example. And, and even, well, I guess the relationship between Yates and, and Benton isn't too bad. A captain would have a sergeant that they would, they would work very closely to and mm. all the rest of them. And, and, you know, it does work. They do salute correctly. I mean, there's talks about, John Levine talks about Douglas Camfield taking him and the others aside and going, right, before we take this, let me teach you guys how to bloody salute. <laughs> That's great. And look, just to pick up on something you were saying about the production teams making this, I, I agree with you. I think uh, it, it's it's obvious there was more of a uh, military background to the earlier Who production teams just by the nature of the eras. I also think it's it just shows a broader change in society. Uh, yes. Where today oh, yes. I think the military people want to mistrust it, second guess it, etc. It's the same with police forces around the world. Uh, I don't want to get up on a soapbox here, but I think back in 1970, you could have a hero who was a brigadier, much more so than you could do it successfully today, for example, in a children's television show. No, absolutely. And look, let, let's say the, the questioning by society of the use of military force is a good thing. I don't think either of us are saying it's not, but you're right. The sense of establishment is very strong in the Pertwee era. Mm, that's that's it, yeah. But yeah, look, I, I like all the characters. The Brigadier gets good stories. He gets a couple of bad stories. I think the Three Doctors is his uh, low point. What do you think of his costume in this uh, season, Dave? I really like it. I know it gets a lot of uh, a lot of criticism, not least from Barry Letts, who hated it and in the next season switched them all into traditional army costumes, but... It does give the era what they're going for, which is this sense of this is not contemporary, this is in the not-too-distant future. It's where Britain has gone a little bit further, it has advanced, it has a space program, uh, there's an extra BBC channel. All those sort of things I think are really clever. And that slightly more futuristic take on a military uniform I think is really good. I know I'm in the minority there. 
Indeed. But Dave, that is a beautiful segue into what I want to talk about next, which is the unit dating controversy. And I know I don't mean Mike Yates' interest in Joe Grant when it comes to dating. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I mean, the way in which, as you say, this era is uh, portrayed, suggested as being in the future. I mean, as far back as the invasion, uh, another unit story, albeit with the second Doctor, people were being told that this was in 1975. It's not said explicitly in the story, but the production office was giving, I think, the continuity announces the information that this was 1975, this was in the future, this is where unit operates. I think of Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion, which is the target novelization of that story. They say it happens in 1977. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? Sarah Jane Smith in Pyramids of Mars, a Tom Baker story, says she comes from 1980. Yet, Mordran Undead explicitly is set in 1977 and 1983. And by 1977, the Brigadier is out of unit. So you've got to assume, don't you, that the most canon reference we have to this era is Mordran Undead, and that suggests that the Brigadier was doing this stuff pre-1977. That is correct. (laughs) The the, the only thing you can say about the unit dating controversy is that it pretty much works in the Pertwee era. The only reason why it doesn't work is Mordran Undead, and that's not the Pertwee era's fault. I, I mean, there are issues with it in the Pertwee era. For example... They didn't know at the time that they made the Mind of Evil that Mao Zedong wasn't long for this world. Mm. And so, you know, couldn't have been alive in 10 years' time or in 7 years' time or whenever it's meant to be set. Well, maybe in the Doctor Who universe, Mao Zedong had a better doctor and does live a few extra years. (laughs) Um, I, I, I don't think it matters. What does matter is the intention of the production team does make it to screen. That is, that this is in the future. And what that means is that Britain can have a space program, that international relations can be a bit different to what they are now, and it does allow for a more interesting and innovative era, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, the space program one is the big one, because even now, 40, almost 50 years later, Britain still hasn't done anything remotely like what's being portrayed here, so it's it's very unrealistic to sort of see this as a real sort of example of even mid-70s or, you know, early 80s or whatever people might want to say Doctor Who is. I guess it was the intent of that early 80s production team to try and get some continuity into Doctor Who and make some timelines up and so on, which does give us what should be, I think, the definitive take on the era when we look back on it. But you're right, before 1983 came along in the Peter Davison era, we were kind of left adrift that this just was in a future sort of time. That's when it was being set. That's right, and we'll discuss the world building more a little bit later in the podcast. The final point I just want to make out of that is, I I guess it does also show where we were in 1970. We had just had the first moon landing, there were going to be future moon landings, and this sense that space exploration was now just going to accelerate, rather than, as we know, kind of peter out in the mid-70s, uh, is really, really obvious. And I think that uh, it does show what we thought our future was going to be like and didn't turn out to be like. Yeah, indeed. We'll move on then to season eight, which I'm a big fan... Look, I'm a, <laughs> this is going to become a little bit repetitive. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of all of these seasons. They're all yeah. great seasons. Season eight, though, is the one that kind of beds down what we think of as being the Pertwee era. It introduces Katie Manning as Joe Grant. It puts the unit organisation into a more... Not, not background, but into a more stable sort of idea. We get this idea the Doctor goes off-world once or twice a season. 
and of course we introduce the master who turns up in all five stories now rob as a kid i don't remember ever thinking oh my god it's the master story again five in a row what's going on i just <laughs> I, I just you just don't think of that as a kid you know every story is its own story and you don't really put them into a continuity and so i didn't care has it ever been a problem for you it's never been a problem for me, Dave, but it does sort of highlight that this is for the first time, I think, in Doctor Who. So we're talking season season eight, so there's been seven previous seasons. This is the first time I think Doctor Who starts to feel, and I'm going to use a term that may get your back up, but I'm going to use it. It gets a bit soap opera-ish in terms of you have these recurring characters like the Master or like Unit, uh, you know, some people still don't regard the unit guys as being companions. They're more like re- recurring characters in this story. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. The Doctor's based out of this one location on the whole, like unit headquarters, broadly. The show sort of becomes a week-to-week soap opera-ish type thing. And in that vein, I don't think it's weird that the Master's always popping up because... In a soap opera, you have the same characters popping up all the time. So, although it's not a soap opera in the terms of, you know, Home and Away or Neighbours is a soap opera, I think it has some of the uh, the style of a soap opera. And that's how we get this unit family vibe sort of building up, uh, particularly in this season. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I think soap opera is not necessarily the right term. I knew it would get you back up. <laughs> yeah, because it comes with certain connotations, and I, I, I get why you use it, and I, yeah, I appreciate that. You're not wrong, though, in terms of the fact that there are characters now that, in addition to the Doctor and his companion, do turn up again and again and again, and therefore we can develop their characters, therefore the actor's portrayal does bleed into their characters. You know, the Brigadier becomes more and more Nick Courtney's character and Nick Courtney takes in a particular direction. The Doctor and the Brigadier can have a developing and ongoing relationship. Uh, Joe and Mike can have a uh, ongoing uh, in inverted commas relationship. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the way that the characters interact with each other is important. We will talk about the Master as his own segment in a moment, so I'm going to park that and just say I don't think there are five out of five classics in this era but i think they're all pretty good terror of the autons i think is a very underrated story i really really like it mind of evil again ignored by a lot of fans because it did exist only in black and white for a very long time but very well directed very well written claws of axos is in my mind the weaker of the season i don't really get that one Mm. colony in space i really enjoy I think the world building in that is, is really good. The characters are really good. It's a Malcolm Hulk story. I think although they've made a decision to sort of do the production in these sort of drab pastels to try and give a particular feel, which I think is the right decision, mm. uh, that, that does make it look a lot duller than it really is. I really like it. And I'm a big fan of the demons. Uh, what about you, Rob? How does season eight sit for you as a set of stories? Oh, look, I, I completely agree on Terror of the Autons. To me, this this has always had such an iconic look with the Autons with those big heads and the yellow blazers and, you know, the, the way the Master looks in that story. You see a still from that story and you're like, oh, my God, that's iconic. That that That's amazing looking. So, yeah, I've never understood why it's, it's underrated with people. Yeah, this is Robert Holmes doing what we would now think to be classic Robert Holmes, which is how do we scare the buggers to death? And the, <laughs> the set pieces and the imagery 
are done really, really well. And again, they've got the budget to have those few those, those few more extras, that bit of location filming, those proper stunts being done. I mean, famously, the Auton being smashed by a car down a cliff, rolling down and then just getting up. Yeah, really good sequences. That that yeah, everything's working well for this story. Yeah, look, Mind of Evil. I've liked as an adult. Uh, even as an adult, it still scares me when they have that riot scene. The the noise and the cacophony of that riot. It's like, oh my god, this is like a real riot. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I also remember being quite scared by Mind of Evil, uh, because it did seem very real and very gritty. Plus, the killer machine that the noise and the effect was really good, but. It could just pop up anywhere. Exactly right. Claws of Axos, I agree, is is a bit weird, and shoehorning the master in there is is extra weird. Yes. Uh, so you know, a bit iffy on that. Colony in space, I've got to say, I was always a little bit bored by, but the demons is one of my favourite stories, as I mentioned at the top of this episode. So on the whole, I think season eight is pretty solid. Having said that, let's talk about the master. Yes. I think that the master's involvement in all these stories works. And I also think there's a real arc that goes across the master's character in season eight. So if you'll, again, indulge me just for a little bit of a a personal headcanon theory. Please. The master turns up in Terror of the Autons, and we know that he's somebody that the Doctor has interacted with back in his, you know, academy days or university days. Uh, It's implied that although the master got his qualification, his master's, if you like, (laughs) <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a higher level than the Doctor's, the Doctor sort of plodded along and eventually became a Doctor, which is uh, a more advanced qualification. So it, it implies that one was naturally gifted and quick academically and the other was more involved and, and, long, and long. So very different sort of personalities. Do you think, it, just to butt in, do you think it's kind of like Mozart and Salieri and how they're portrayed in Armadeus? I think that is, actually is a very good comparison, Yeah, yeah. So you get that relationship set up right from the start. And the Doctor, when he's told the Master is coming easy, like, that Jack and Apes, all he, does is, all he does is cause trouble. There isn't the sense of him being this particularly evil, world-destroying guy. He's just a guy that likes to come up and mess with the Doctor. And Terror of the Autons is just the Master coming along and messing with the Doctor and kind of like, hey, remember how we used to, like, you know, make fun of each other at university and, you know, had this antagonism? Let's just carry this on out in the universe. People criticise the Terror of the Autons because the Master's plan is abandoned very quickly, but that makes sense if the Master actually doesn't really care about the Nestines per se. He's just using them to help mess with the Doctor. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. He's pranking the Doctor on a global scale or a countrywide scale. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mind of Evil, he's stuck on Earth, so he goes and does a few things that's going to sort of keep him interested and cause a bit of havoc and and i think as well again just mess with the doctor and obviously try to get his dematerialization circuit back the clause of axos he's got out in the universe and it's axos that captures him and he says well look don't don't kill me um i can take you somewhere that's got some awesome stuff for you to do uh, <laughs> i know this place called earth let's go and the master spends his whole time in the clause of axos just wanting to get out of there 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, he, he is shoehorned in there, but the way you describe his role in the story, yeah, that, that still makes sense. It does. Plus, of course, because the Doctor's inside Axos for a lot of time, we get the Master interacting with Unit, and he, his relationship with the Brigadier is really good. Uh, he gets all the best lines in the story about, you know, you might as well try and fly a second-hand gas stove or, you know, <laughs> well, I suppose you could take the u- usual precautions against nuclear explosion, sticky tape on the windows. <laughs> So I like that. But then in Colony in Space is where I think it all changes. Because the big climax of Colony in Space is the Master and the Doctor having taken control of the Doomsday Machine. And the Master says, let's share the universe between us. And that offer is absolutely genuine. He clearly has a regard for the Doctor. He clearly wants the Doctor's admiration. And he wants nothing more than he and the Doctor to go around and fix the universe. And the Master, even here, is talking about you can bring order to the universe. We can end conflict. We can govern the universe in a really benevolent and effective way. And the Master obviously wants power out of that as well. But the Doctor thinks about it. But at the moment where the Doctor says, I don't want this, I don't want to do this with you, I'm rejecting you. From then on, I think it's where you see the Master go, right, I no longer want the Doctor's admiration. He's almost like, I don't want to use this term because it, it comes loaded, but, but like a spurned lover. Yeah. Now, look, Dave, question without notice again. There is a there is a Peter Capaldi story you're not very fond of at all in which the Master, or Missy, tries to give the Doctor a cyber army. I can draw a direct through line from this story we're talking about in the Pertwee era and the Master, what he wants to do, to that story. And even though you don't like that Capaldi story, I can see the Master's intent as being the same in both stories. I agree. I think the way it's handled is phenomenally different and far, far, far less effective in the later well, one. Well, in, indeed. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but yes, that is a very valid line to draw. And then we end up with the demons where he does just want to destroy the Doctor. So I think there is this arc of this turning point. He goes off, he gets put into prison, then he escapes, he goes off into space, we see him far less frequently. Mm. But after Colony in Space, he is just about, how can I get power? How can I conquer the universe? And how can I destroy the Doctor? And so there is a growth and change. Uh, the final point I'll make before I hand over to you, Rob, because I have spoken for a bit, is I've got to say, as a kid, I can still remember every time there was that moment of, Thascalus is the Greek word for master. I just got, oh my God, wow, that's so clever. <laughs> and uh, so I always love those moments. Rob, I've spoken for a bit. What do you think of all that? Yeah, look, uh, I'm... I'm completely on the same page with you Dave and I, although I made the Mozart and Salieri uh, analogy earlier which was just something that came to me and it, it, it does seem like a good one now I think the obvious one to, to talk about is the Sherlock Holmes Moriarty uh, comparisons you know no one ever complains when Moriarty pops up in Sherlock Holmes stories so you know no one should really complain when the master pops up in uh, season eight stories here I think the combination of what the character represents this foil for the Doctor uh, in a way we haven't really seen before, uh, except maybe in a small way in the Time Meddler, you know, as being another another yes. Time Lord uh, sort of messing around with uh, with things. It's, it's a first, and I think Roger Delgado is just such a wonderful actor. You know, it's hard to make a, a podcast like this without just treading over the same territory as many, many books, many, many podcasts, but the voice, the eyes, the look... Uh, the costume, it all just comes together so, so well. He is iconic here in Season 8. He is and works perfectly as a foil for Pertwee. Yeah, absolutely agree. 
And don't forget, although he's in all five stories in season eight, he is only in three of the ten stories from seasons nine and ten. Oh, exactly. He he does really, really drop off. Uh, oh, that's a very unfortunate term. Uh, he... He, he does he does uh, he does sort of disappear after being so strong in this season but that's okay too I think it's good to have this strong opening and then be used sparingly in the uh, the future seasons Rob do you want to take us through season nine season nine Dave 1972 kicking off with day of the Daleks which again at the top of this show I mentioned as being one of the early BBC videos so one of the the first Pertwee stories I probably saw like multiple times yes. in a row. And so that one really imprinted on my mind. And it's a good story to boot, which is great. Uh, followed by The Curse of Peladon, which, as people will famously say, is the better of the two Peladon tales. And it Into- is. <laughs> and it is into the sea devils where we get the silurians back and these new critters called the well we call them the sea devils the mutants which is maybe uh, not so good and then the time monster which is one of those pertwee stories that gets panned perhaps even to a greater degree as something like terror of the autons but which i've always had a lot of time for based on the target novel so again a pretty solid season for me. Most of the stories here, I think, are really, really fantastic. I think it does show the variety that the Pertwee era is now developing. Day of the Daleks, you have the whole alternative futures thing, which is really clever and really interesting. Uh, Curse of Peladon, you go off to a, a new world. It's a very interesting world. The Sea Devils is back with a recurring monster, but a completely different take, plus the Master. The Mutants is one of the two Pertwees that I think is absolutely terrible. Uh, I know that that is not a universally shared view of the story, but I think it looks terrible. The plot makes no sense. The characters are awful. The acting's awful. It's got, mm. I just don't think it works at all. Uh, but but I, I respect that there are people who do like it, and certainly the messages that they're trying to put through uh, are, are worthy. Time Monster, for me, is a beast of three parts. I do think parts one and two on Earth are and to an extent part three are kind of terrible Mm. Uh, part four in the TARDIS with the Doctor of the Masters TARDIS steps up and that's actually quite good and a really good interaction parts five and six in Atlantis I think are actually really really good they are much better written they're much better cast Uh, you get all the stuff with Dalios you get all the stuff with uh, the Master and uh, Galea Um, and and then the the final destruction of Atlantis I, I think that it builds towards a good outcome but the first half is kind of ratty uh dave this is the first of the pertwee seasons we're talking about here that has the daleks in it it's been a while since we last saw them it is and it is the production team bringing them back and and wanting to use them for that big season opener Uh, i think that this is this is a difficult one because it's a very good story i think day of the daleks is a really good story with terrible use of the daleks uh, the Daleks will get far better usage, I think, in the, the, the next two Pertwee stories they're in, which is a shame. But after a, quite a gap in terms of Dalek stories, it is a little bit of a rough comeback for them. Uh, and their appearance is carried along by the rest of the plot, which really doesn't involve them. Yeah, and look, I, I raise the Daleks in part because I want to compare and contrast them with the other big Doctor Who baddie, the Cybermen. Uh, obviously, the Daleks hadn't popped up in Doctor Who for a long time. You know, Troughton got some early Dalek stories and then they sort of shuffled off uh, and it had been a while, as we say, this is Pertwee's third series uh, that they appear in. Conversely, the Cybermen had sort of appeared all through Troughton to the degree 
that the production team here, well, it's no spoiler to say this, even though we haven't spoken about season 10 or 11 yet, the Cybermen don't turn up at all in Pertwee's era, aside from, I, I think, when he's having a flashback to something, we see a Cyberman briefly. Your thoughts, Dave, on that? He obviously, Pertwee obviously gets three good Dalek stories, but no Cyberman stories. Look, I think it's a shame. I think I'd like to see how Pertwee would handle the Cybermen, but the production team wasn't interested in using them, and I guess it would actually have been a bad outcome if they just felt, okay, well, I guess we need to put a Cyberman story in here, and their heart wasn't in it. So if their heart wasn't in it, it's probably better that they don't do it. Yeah, look, that's a very fair and, and, and valid answer. I, I do find it a shame, though. I would have been fascinated to see Pertwee up against them, probably because I'm just a Cyberman fanboy more than anything. No, look, I understand that. It, it would have been nice for it to happen, but I guess the fact that they didn't do it maybe says it maybe wouldn't have been as nice as we imagined. Yeah, very, very true. I want to have a quick chat now about the world building of the era. And I've got two points to make here, Mm -hmm. but they both stem from, again, that production team stability that we spoke about earlier, where you've got Let's and Dicks over five years building a continuity. And, And they are the first production team to really build a continuity. The two aspects are the contemporary world and the future. It's amazing looking back now for a show in the 1970s that they actually have a genuine sort of take on what the future of Earth is going to look like that bleeds through a number of seasons. You get this idea of Frontier in Space doing the first expansion of Earth, going out there, conquering the frontier, you know, sort of like conquering, you know, the West of America and the New World, going out there, sometimes making a, a hash of it, getting into conflicts they shouldn't and all the rest of it, but but mankind reaching out there. Colony in Space, you get a look at what that sort of looks like at its peak with some people going off and being parts of big corporations and big companies and corruption and others wanting to go off and colonize worlds and that's Mm -hmm. really good and then in the mutants this idea of the empire contracting and and getting too big and, and, and falling apart and all the dates line up and all these ideas line up so that's really clever at the same time all the contemporary stories you get a sense of what the geopolitics of the Perwi era is. The way that the UK interacts with China and with Peking. The way that the peace conferences are happening. Like, this feels like a consistent world in both senses. Uh, and that, to me, is a really incredible thing for 1970s television. Oh, absolutely. It, it's sort of, you know, mimicking the, the real world. I mean, we say the modern era. We say that New Who picks up on themes from the modern world. But I don't think it does it half as well or to the degree that this Pertwee era was doing. No. When I look back on it. No, and the way that they address contemporaneous issues. I mean, ecology is absolutely something that winds its way through the Pertwee era in in a way that I think is thought-provoking without ever being too heavy-handed. Yeah, I mean, this thought that, you know, and we touched on this briefly earlier, that Pertwee is this establishment figure and, you know, people weren't uh, that into him. I've always looked at this era and thought, no, he's not He's not establishment. He does have a posh voice and he likes cheese and wine, but he's always opposed to, you know, these sort of ecological vandal-type people and, and such. He's, he's always on a completely different sort of side to the establishment. He's always arguing with a man from the ministry, uh, so to speak. It's, it's quite strange that people could think he is very, very establishment. Absolutely, and the, the era continues to invite us to contrast parochial idiots from the ministry with 
outwardly thinking internationalists. So international alliances, whether it's the United Nations or peace treaties or working together as a, as a, as a world, is shown to be a very positive, uh, very liberal sort of thing in the Perwi era, whereas parochialism and isolationism are not. That's correct, yes. And, and that, again, without thumping us over the head, is a part of this world that we do build. And look, Pertwee, as a member of the establishment, it, it kind of sort of comes from the fact that he does like to sit in a gentleman's club and eat cheese and wine. But if I'd been exiled away from my home and I had the opportunity to go somewhere and eat cheese and drink wine, I'd probably would as well. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't blame him for that. Yeah, I mean, it's part of this doctor's personality that he probably doesn't want to be bothered too much by, by people and, and sitting in a, a gentleman's club probably does make a lot of sense. You know, I I completely get it. I, I've never thought he, he deserved the criticism for it, though, or the character, I should say, not Pertwee himself. The character deserved criticism for it. Uh, quite strange to me. Yes, and I think a lot of it does come from that exchange in Terror of the Autons where he name drops the uh, senior civil servant. And... I don't know whether he's bluffing there or not, but I certainly don't take, take that as a genuine my mate Tubby Brownrose. I mm. kind of took it as either he's bluffing or, you know, at some point while he's been enjoying a nice glass of, you know, red and a, and a good, good gorgonzola, he's happened to meet this guy and he thinks, well, I'll just name drop this guy. Because, look, the Doctor name drops a lot in this era. That's part of his character. Yeah, agree. Season 10, the 10th anniversary season, which opens with our nine years and two month anniversary story the three doctors <laughs> i thought you'd bring that up uh look it, we look back now the three doctors as being the 10th anniversary story that's not quite correct it's the 10th anniversary season and it is the opportunity where they do bring back hartle and Troughton for what i think is probably still my favorite multi-doctor story i think that oh that's a big call Dave. it's a big call and i know you're a big fan of the five doctors as am i but I think that the interaction between Pertwee and Troughton, between Troughton and Benton, uh, and even the interactions that William Hartnell gets with the others as well, I think just makes the best use of having multiple Doctors. Uh, the Five Doctors is great, but a lot of it is the Five Doctors on different missions that only come together at the end, whereas this really gives us a lot of great interplay between the Doctors, and I think is a really good story for it. It's a mythic story that builds the world a bit more and gives us the the time lord so look i really like it i like all of the stories in this carnival of monsters is a fun robert holmes story frontier in space is one of my favorites a huge epic space opera story with great monsters and great alien races and the master i love it planet of the daleks i really enjoy and as as a as a 10th anniversary sort of celebration of the Daleks. I think it works really well. It's probably the weakest of that season, which says a lot about how good the season is. And the Green Death is really good. So, look, I've just pre-ordered my Season 10 Blu-ray, which is finally available for pre-order <laughs> in Australia. It's coming out next month. I can't wait to smash out this season. Uh, for John Pertwee's fourth season to be so good just shows how well this era is going. I'm not quite as effusive as you about this season, Dave, but I'm probably close. I think Three Doctors, Carnival of Monsters and The Green Death are all stone-cold classics. Planet of the Daleks, yeah, not so good. Uh, it's Frontier in Space that's my sort of wild card here, a story I've never quite 
grasped not in terms of i don't understand it but it's never just it's never grabbed me i've never grabbed it we've never embraced it's it's an odd one and it's actually going to be the first story i watch when that aforementioned box set lobs on my doorstep well let's make a point of getting your thoughts on that after you've seen it because i'm really interested because i'm a big fan planet of the daleks i get your comment do you at least find it fun Oh, of course. I mean, people in, in purple furry costumes and, and spray painting an invisible Dalek, you know, it's it's fun. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And it's it's interesting to see uh, Tals again and so on. But uh, it's just it's just not <laughs> top-tier Doctor Who, which I think Three Doctors, Carnival Monsters, Green Death are, you know, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind. Look, fair enough. I'm a little bit more effusive, but that's okay, I think. We can both agree they're fun. Oh, I'm very close though, Dave. It's a pretty good season. It is a very good season. Now, we haven't mentioned the companions, Rob. Do you want to lead a bit of a discussion on that? I do, Dave. And before I go into... Well, I guess we'll talk about one companion in particular in a moment. But I wanted to talk about something uh, broad. Something we even touched on at the start of this conversation. And that's the Pertwee era. And this might throw you a bit. And chauvinism. Do you want yes. to talk about that? Because I think up until this era, up until the Joe Grant companion, so we're already skipping over Liz Shaw, we'll get back to Liz Shaw in a moment. Up until Joe, I feel female companions on Doctor Who were usually pretty smart. They usually stood up to the Doctor pretty well, even going back to Barbara, the first female companion. Oh, I guess Susan was, but, you know, the second female companion. Uh, she stood up to the Doctor. The way women were portrayed on Doctor Who was always very well done. Only probably Victoria was, you know, a bit light and a bit of a screamer up until Joe. But when we get the Joe Grant character and combined with the Pertwee Doctor's tendency to maybe be a bit patriarchal and uh, condescending to everyone, it must be said, not just women... We get this sort of era, and Joe Grant's in it for three seasons, where I think the show sort of takes a bit of a turn that it hadn't really been in before. Terence Dix, I think, introduced Joe to, to be the girl who gets tied to the railway tracks. I think he introduced the master to be the mustachioed, you know, moustache-twirling uh, villain, and so on. It, it's a very particular kind of story that's being told, and I just don't know if, if it just doesn't tip over into being a bit chauvinistic at times even as joe grows and gets better and you know there are scenes later in her era where she'll even stand up to the brigadier she's not just this young operative in unit she's she's she really knows her stuff but even when she grows up like that she still ends up being mrs cliff jones and thinking that cliff jones is a younger version of the doctor it's ah I don't want to bag the series, the era, because of this, but I do see this as a little bit of a theme that could be slightly problematic, and I thought it was maybe worth talking about as we talk about companions. I think it's a good point. I don't entirely agree, and I think you're actually underselling Joe Grant quite a bit there. Mm-hmm. It's th- th- There's no doubt that after Lee Shaw's season, and I love Lee Shaw, I think she's a really good companion, it's good to see that sort of uh, intelligence and that dynamic between them, but I understand the point that Terence Dix particularly has made that she's not an audience identification figure. Um, I must admit, as a kid, I didn't care. I just thought she was great. Uh, and, and also that you do need your companion to get into trouble for the sake of uh, drama. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be a peril monkey. And I don't think that Joe Grant is. 
I think Joe Grant is shown to be very naive, very, mm. very green, but she's got a lot of talent. She, in her first story, she shows that her escapology is actually pretty good. She clues on to what the Doctor's talking about frequently far better than the Brigadier does. She, she has a number of skills that go through. And yes, let me put it in these terms, she is more vulnerable than Liz Shaw, and she does need the plot explained to her more than Liz Shaw, but I get that in a TV show, you do have to have someone for the Doctor to explain the plot to, and you do need someone who can get into danger. But Joe Grant does get to rescue the Doctor probably at least as often as he gets to rescue her. I still can't get around, though, that Joe does come across as ditzy. And it's kind of a new sort of... As I say, you think back to other companions. Zoe wasn't a ditz. Polly, even though she was a 60s dolly bird, she wasn't a ditz. Barbara certainly wasn't. Susan wasn't. You I, know, yeah, it, I, I don't think that Joe is either. Really? I, I think that she is, as, as as I said, I think she is more green. And I think that she is perhaps more in touch with cultural sort of norms. And maybe it's that soap opera thing you're talking about earlier, Rob, where because we're seeing her on a regular basis in contemporary London, she gets to go out on dates more and she gets to go and see concerts more and make all those sort of pop culture references. But I think she's extremely well qualified and um you know she going right through to something like Funter in space she gets to outwit the master she gets to prove herself immune to his hypnotism and has grown as a character because she was vulnerable to it in terror of the autons i think that you're underselling joe quite a bit there okay well we've mentioned liz briefly we've talked a lot about joe compare and contrast her though to sarah jane and i guess it's a bit unfair because sarah jane does kick on into the tom baker era and against a different doctor i think she grows and progresses a a lot more than she would have perhaps with pertwee but i see joe as being incredibly different to sarah jane for example there is certainly an extra level of independence around sarah jane Mm. Uh, and i think part of that comes by the fact that joe is a unit employee and is therefore formerly the doctor's assistant Sarah Jane is actually an independent journalist. She writes for serious magazines. Uh, she just happens to bump into the Doctor in the course of one of those stories and then goes on an adventure with him and then he's just kind of hanging out with him. And even in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, there's almost this thing of like, well, hang on, you're just, you're just a civilian. You shouldn't be here. And yeah. that, that does give her a level of independence that I think Joey's lacking. It is a step forward. But... Yeah, look, it's it's interesting you raise that. I mean, part of it also as well comes from the fact that although there's obviously a very, very great fondness between the third Doctor and Joe, and you only need to see the way that he reacts to her departure in The Green Death um, yes. just to see how that good that is. Not just the, the, the leaving scene at the end, which is one of the best leaving scenes of any companion, but the moment in part one where he says, come and travel with me in the TARDIS, and she says, no, I'm going to go off and do what I think is important. At that point, he knows she's leaving. Yeah. And you really feel that. But but beyond that, though, yes, there is a certain arrogance to the Pertwee Doctor, which I think I love, and I get why other people sometimes find it annoying. But the way he treats Joe sometimes does, I guess, give some credence to what you're saying, Rob. I think of that wonderful example in about part four of The Demons, where the Doctor's talking to the Brigadier about how to get through the heat barrier, and the Brigadier makes a comment and... The Doctor sort of says to everyone, what a stupid decision, the Brigadier doing that, oh, what an idiot. Then about two minutes later, something else happens, and Joe says, gee, the Brigadier doing that, what an idiot. And the Doctor turns around, Joe, don't you talk about the Brigadier that way, how dare you? (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's so hypocritical and it's so arrogant and I, and, I, and I love it but yes I can see where that dynamic does feed into what you're saying Rob mm, and just to go back to that green death scene it's almost like the doctor is leaving Joe rather than Joe leaving the doctor the, the, the doctor's been replaced by as I said earlier the younger version of himself and yes. he's the one who drives off into the sunset so to speak yeah absolutely absolutely yeah but all of them do get on with Pertwee in a different way I just need to reinforce, though, I love the dynamic between Liz Shaw and the Doctor. I love the way that with Pertwee at his hardest and most arrogant, he's got a companion who is so willing to go toe-to-toe with him. And she does go toe-to-toe with him. And Liz Shaw is certainly not a peril monkey. I mean, yeah, okay, she screams when she's attacked by Silurian and Claude. I, I'll, you know, I give her that one. Uh, mm. When she's kidnapped by the baddies in ambassadors of death she gives them a pretty good chase before she's captured she throws one off the edge of a weir and then successfully escapes uh once only to be recaptured and that's not her fault she's a very capable companion does that help the drama sometimes maybe not yeah of the three dave i'm gonna ask you which is your favorite if you can even determine that for me it's Growing up, I was very much in the Joe camp, probably because she is in the majority of these stories and seemed to be the most, I don't know, personable out of all of them. And, and probably the one, as, as you know, as a 10-year-old, I thought, oh, I could be friends with that lady. She, she's quite nice, you know, to, to look at it in those sort of terms. Yeah. Sarah Jane, I, I equate so much with the Tom Baker Doctor. I I almost forget she's a Pertwee companion yeah, uh, yeah. first. And Liz is hardly in any stories. Obviously, only four stories in that first season. And as a as a kid, she just didn't resonate with me as much as Joe because she was maybe a bit more clinical, a bit colder, perhaps. But as an adult, I've come to really, really like Liz. On balance, I find it very hard to say. I'd probably still actually go with Joe simply because I've seen her in so many stories. But my regard for Liz is quite high, and I think what Sarah Jane does with Tom is amazing. Um, they're three pretty good companions, but all quite different uh, in themselves and with the way they interact with the Pertwee Doctor, as you said. If you asked me this question when I was 13, I would have said, without hesitation, Lishaw. Clearly head and shoulders. Really? As a youngster? As a youngster, absolutely. Uh, now I will still answer Lishaw, but it's a much tougher split to make. Because Sarah, you're right, you bring in all the stuff that you see with her in the Tom Baker era, but she's so strong in season 11, so strong. Joe Grant is the one that I've actually come to regard more as I've grown up and I've started to see just what her abilities were and how good a performance she gives. And also, and this is the final point I want to make, how much Joe Grant really does set the template for the companion that frankly is still the template used today. It is the Pertwee era, but I think particularly Joe Grant, that does set up this idea that you have the Doctor and a companion and the way they work together. And that goes right through the rest of the 70s. It comes back at the end of the 80s and where it's not done in the 80s, I think most people kind of say that it doesn't work as well. Uh, maybe Tegan and Turlow or maybe the Doctor and Adric briefly kind of work. But, but that idea of the Doctor and a female companion isn't a thing until the Pertwee era. But it's another thing that Let's Brings in that does last until today. I agree 100% with that. I find, though, that most people attribute it to the Doctor and Sarah, which is, you know, a bit rude because the Doctor and Joe did it first. Yeah, three seasons, three full seasons, Joe Grant was there. That is really formative, yeah. 
Shall we move on to season 11? Take us through it, Rob. Well, season 11, Dave, uh, spanned 73 and 74. And it contains some wonderful stories. Also some stories I've never quite gotten into. It kicks off with the Time Warrior, which some people really love, but I never had a lot of regard for. Uh, and maybe we can touch on that a bit later. Invasion of the Dinosaurs, I think, is absolutely amazing. Even for a longer story, it always keeps my interest. It is fantastic. I know you're the president of the uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs <laughs> Appreciation Society, Dave. I'm a card-carrying member myself. Uh, Death to the Daleks, a bit of fun. Daleks with machine guns, yeah, take it or leave it. Monster of Peladon, best not said uh, too much about that. And Planet of Spiders, I think, has some really wonderful moments, but is perhaps a little a little overblown, a little self-indulgent, and could be a bit tighter. So, of all the Pertwee seasons, this could possibly be the weakest, even though it contains such a gem like Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah, I think that there is an argument that it is the weakest. I'm not convinced. I think that Season 9 has its problems as well. Um, and they both have their strengths. They're both very good seasons. There's a lot I like about season 11. I think that Sarah coming in does give it a new dynamic. I think that Pertwee is very confident in this one. I think the Brigadier gets back on form in this one after being a little off in season 10 particularly. Uh, I love the credits, the opening credits for this. They're my favourite opening credits, so that's a good thing. But yes, it isn't perfect. To go in reverse order, Planet of the Spiders, I've said before... Is it the best story to contain a regeneration? Absolutely not. Is it the best regeneration story in terms of a thematic summing up of the era, bringing back cast and crew and celebrating that era? I think absolutely. And it does bring home the character of the Doctor. And the fact that his, his arrogance and his greed leads him down the path that causes his, his death, so to speak, is such an important aspect of the era. Monster of Peladon... I think is unquestionably the low point of the era. It is terrible, it is boring, it is cheap, it is it is just awful. Uh, that's a shame. Death to the Daleks would have been one of my absolute most watched stories when I was a kid. I think as a, as a, as a young boy, that was so exciting. Uh, now, <laughs> nowadays, I, I can see its lack of depth, but I still enjoy it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Invasion of the Dinosaurs, you've summed up my views, and I think you know, it's, it's just a wonderful story. Time Warrior, though... Yeah, I I like it, but I'm not sure why, and I don't think it's quite the Stone Cold classic others do. I think Lynx is a great character. I think that Robert Holmes doing Iron Grung and Blood Axe is a really good example of the Holmes in Double Act. Sarah gets a good introduction. All the bits are good. Yeah, it's it's not bad, but dot dot dot. It it is yeah. It's it's not bad at all. It's it's very enjoyable doesn't quite come together with the spark that I think the other best Pertwees do. Mm, agree. So, look, that brings us to the end of the Pertwee era on screen, but we've got a few little dot points we have to talk about. Uh, Rob, I said earlier that The Three Doctors is my favourite multi-doctor story, and you um, came down the microphone and slapped me. <laughs> uh, so, tell us about The Five Doctors and Pertwee in particular. Oh, Dave... 
as I always say, the Five Doctors is a comfortable pair of slippers. It just feels like such fun. And to talk about the Third Doctor in particular, we mentioned earlier his era not having Cybermen. Five Doctors gave him Cybermen. At long last, the Pertwee Doctor shared the screen with them. He wasn't standing up to them, though. He was just watching them get massacred by another uh, robot. But at least we saw him on screen with them. The Pertwee Doctor in the Five Doctors, I think, is just this beautiful... Uh, amalgam of what the Pertwee Doctor had been during his era. Everything's there. The bouffant hair, you know, which he, like Peter Capaldi, he started off with short hair, but finally had the bouffant. And in three doc- uh, in five Doctors, he has the bouffant going on. He has the opera jacket going on. He's got Bessie, although they have to, to leave it behind at some stage. And he's teamed up with Sarah Jane Smith. It's just fantastic. He, he also gets to be, without Tom Baker there, uh, I think Pertwee gets to sort of take command at times because Davison does have that more meek persona even though he's the incumbent he sort of takes a step back for Pertwee and Troughton uh, in particular obviously Herndl is a, is a bit of a ring in uh, so yeah. I think per- Pertwee gets a bit of a star turn at times in the five doctors frankly yeah I think he's a standout in the five doctors he's the one that best walks straight back into the role uh, you mentioned a lot of good interactions there he gets he gets that lovely interaction with the master at the start where he just doesn't trust him and gets to be arrogant to him. Uh, Pertwee also gets that lovely moment when he sees Lethbridge Stewart for the first time and there's that such warm regard and respect. That's a lovely moment. As is that wonderful moment where it's the brigadier who, on seeing the master, does the whole line, nice to see you again, wallop. And that's <laughs> that's clearly been many years in the making and I, I love that Terence Dix gives the brigadier that chance to actually just finally just smack the master yeah like i say it's just all these wonderful little moments and it just fits like comfy slippers it it's it's wonderful i can see why though you say it's a it's it's a different type of story to the three doctors i mean the three doctors hartnell's just popping up on you know a screen from time to time saying you know how are you going eh uh and and he's sort of sidelined it's it's more like two doctors really Mm. having a, a pretty uh solid adventure whereas five doctors is more like little set pieces put together Yes, and the third Doctor does get to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, so that's important. (laughs) Nowadays, Rob, we think of former Doctors turning up in audio adventures as being not not just standard, but maybe excessive. Um, Whereas (laughs) back in the 90s, it wasn't a thing, and the first ones to happen were John Pertwee and Nick Courtney and Elizabeth Sladen coming back to do two audio adventures in the 30th anniversary for the BBC, uh, the Paradise of Death and the Ghost of Endspace. Paradise of Death, to me, is probably my favourite audio adventure. Um, and part of that is nostalgic, part of that is symbolic. But it is a very good adventure that I think kind of sums up the Pertwee era pretty well. It, it's a little bit odd in that, you know, it, it can now be set in sort of the not-too-distant future from where we are now, and that doesn't all quite gel that well, but it's mm. got alien races, it's got going off into space it's got monsters it's got an ecological message i really like it it was written by barry letts of course who does it and and those actors sort of slip into the, the roles very well the ghost event space is absolutely terrible i've listened to it once and not again i probably should give it another go sometime because it is what 20 something years since i last heard it yeah uh, so i should give it another go but i'm very pleased that per we got to do a couple of those audios before he did die in 1996 
Yes, and of course the third Doctor's legacy goes on in audio, although I'm not sure how keen you might be on this sort of thing, Dave. Big Finish uh, has done a bunch of companion chronicles where past companions, so you've got like Katie Manning and, and other uh, people who acted alongside Pertwee sort of narrate a story and will do impressions of him. And if you've never heard Katie Manning doing Pertwee before, it's kind of a treat. But perhaps more controversially, Big Finish also does the Third Doctor Adventures where they have recast the Third Doctor with a fella called Tim Trelaw. Uh, he does a passable Pertwee. He certainly does a better Pertwee than Big Finish's uh, replacement for Capaldi does Capaldi, uh, which I just find bizarre given Capaldi is still alive uh, and we have no option with Pertwee. I don't know how you feel, though, about someone doing essentially a Pertwee impersonation, even though he does appear alongside Katie Manning p- portraying Joe Grant, Dave. Uh, it's not something that interests me. Right. Uh, I-, I don't say that in a aggressive or negative way I you know if, if I had 50 hours in the day um, <laughs> it's, it's the sort of thing I'll check out but I don't and it just yeah it's yeah, it, uh, yeah if, if people enjoy them then that's great I have no problem with that it's just not something that's ever really got high enough on my radar to, to listen to Mm, no, fair enough. And of course, there's also a bunch of short trip audios and the BBC uh, audio drama department have also put out a lot of uh, Doctor Who stories featuring past Doctors where someone narrates a story featuring a past Doctor like the Third Doctor. So there is a lot of extra Third Doctor content out there on audio if, uh, if you do seek it out. We'll move then very quickly to the books because the Pertwee era does continue in the books. I've got to say, as someone who is a fan of the Virgin Missing Adventures, I think that the Third Doctor's era is probably one of the, if not the weakest, one that's covered in this era. There aren't a lot of really good books there. The standout for me out of the Virgin range is The Scales of Injustice by Gary Russell. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good book. That's with Liz Shore and Unit, and it's a sequel to uh, The Silurians and a prequel to The Sea Devils and The Warriors of the Deep. And it does actually do a lot of stuff in there with uh, the Unit characters. Dance in the Code isn't bad. Eye of the Giant isn't bad, but that's the standout for me. Um, I should also mention in the new adventures that the book Legacy, although it's a McCoy Doctor story, it is a sequel to uh, the Peladon stories, again written by Gary Russell. Um, And ironically, as we record this, look, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 days before this comes out with Brexit, but given that we are meant to have the UK leaving the EU in 11 days time from time of recording it's interesting that Legacy actually has Peladon leave the Galactic Federation mm. after joining it in Curse of Peladon so that's a nice little bit of a segment there in terms of the BBC books one of the ones they were launched with was The Devil Goblins from Neptune which is a really good Pertwee book and I've got to mention quickly one of my favourite Doctor Who books of all time which is David McGinty's Face of the Enemy, which is set in the Pertwee era without the Third Doctor. He goes off on an adventure. There is an invasion of a sort I won't give away, and the Brigadier needs help. He calls upon eminent scientists with some expertise in this area, uh, Barbara and Ian Chesterton, to come and help Mm -hmm. him. But he also says to the Master, who's in jail at this time, look, if the Earth's destroyed and you're here, that's bad for you, so how about you come and help me beat this invasion and it goes from there and it's one of the best portrayals of the master in any medium whatsoever so that's a couple of books that i particularly like from the third doctor's era what about you rob 
Yeah, I'd jot it down Face of the Enemy 2, Dave. We'll just leave it at being a, uh, a sequel to a uh, very popular Third Doctor story. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> if people want to seek that out, they can. I've read probably half of the PDAs that involve the Third Doctor, and I've got to say most of them were pretty traditional, classic-type stories, and they resonated pretty well with me. He gets a lot of good BBC and and Virgin writers uh, writing for him. He gets... uh, David A. McKinty, as as you mentioned, he gets a Mark Gatiss uh, story called Last of the Gadarene. He gets a Terence Dix story. Actually, he gets a Terence Dix and Barry Lett story called Deadly Reunion and another one called Island of Death by Barry Lett. So there's a lot of really traditional type stuff going on in the PDA range. But I wanted to just briefly mention his role in the EDA range or the Eighth Doctor range. Uh, where in a couple of books called Interference Book 1 and Interference Book 2, the third Doctor plays a small but absolutely major and integral role to the storyline and the Eighth Doctor and so on. And the, the author of these books, Lawrence Miles, gets a lot of crap. But I'll say that I think Lawrence Miles' imagination leaves most Who writers in the dust. It makes them look like eighth graders. Interference, book one and two, is absolutely astonishing for for Doctor Who fiction. And when people say that the BBC books range maybe wasn't as good as the Virgin books range, I'd broadly agree, but I'd also point to stuff like Interference. I mean, I guess it's not everyone's cup of tea. Interference can be quite uh, heavy and full on. I mean, when the third Doctor's TARDIS console starts dripping blood, I guess some people might go, oh, that's really weird. That never happened on TV. That isn't my third Doctor. Whereas to me, I'm intrigued. I'm like, wow, what what an image. What is going on here? And as I say, he's, he's not in the books a lot, but what he does in the books profoundly affects the eighth Doctor. I just think interference is amazing. And also, I'll mention this one because I didn't know about this until I started researching for this episode. There was a new Third Doctor novel, sort of a, a standalone hardbacky type thing called Harvest of Time, which came out in June of 2013. So it might have been a 50th anniversary tie-in. I never saw any publicity about it, though, Dave. And that's a that's a Third Doctor, Joe and Master story, you know, the Brigadiers in it and so on. It's one I might go out and track down. I think there's even an audio version read by Jeffrey Beavers, and I think it could be the most recent Third Doctor story in print, at least. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know some of that. So there's a couple there I might check out. Mm. Um, Finally, I just wanted to mention, in terms of John Pertwee himself, the role he played as the senior figure in fandom in the 90s when I was most involved... Pertwee did go through a period where, like a lot of actors, he wanted to distance himself from the show. You, you, you notice that when he goes on chat shows like Parkinson in the late 70s, early 80s, he's not talking about Doctor Who. He's wearing John Pertwee clothes, not the, 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 the Doctor clothes, and he's off doing Wurzel Gummidge, and he, he loved doing Wurzel Gummidge. But as he sort of moved further towards retirement, that's when he did start to do those appearances in the Third Doctor's costume and really did become... This, this father figure for the series. I think people like Davison and McCoy and uh, Colin did look up to Pertwee and there was a respect for him. He did involve himself in some of the amateur productions, uh, the uh, Air Zone Solution being the big one, where he does play the elder statesman figure in that mm. story. And so, yeah, I think that's sort of a lovely final involvement for him. And, and he was a big uh, raconteur at conventions throughout his life. 
Do you think, Dave, he was a bit miffed by Tom Baker coming into the series uh, from the point of view that perhaps towards the end of his era he didn't want to leave, then he got replaced by a guy who just blitzed past his record. I mean, Pertwee puts in all these years into the role, probably thinks, I I am the Doctor, in fact, (laughs) makes a recording to that effect. Uh, But then Tom Baker comes in, blows him away in terms of popularity uh, with the public uh, in terms of the years he puts into the show and is regarded as the definitive Doctor. Do you think Pertwee might have been miffed by that and then saw an opportunity as Baker really didn't give a hoot about fandom and such in the late 80s, 90s and such for Pertwee to get into the costume and go out there, you know, saying, I am the Doctor and, and really taking that role because, you know, uh, Baker wasn't uh, too interested in it. It's speculative, but it does sound right, doesn't it? Mm. It's it's how I read it from the outside, at least. Mm, very, very much. Yeah. But, uh, look, John Pertwee is a man. Wonderful. Uh, we were talking books, and I'll just go back briefly to, just to mention there is a uh, autobiography called Moon Boots and Dinner Suits, which is a great read. It's it's more about his early life and his Navy life and the war and such like that yeah. than, than it is Doctor Who. And there is a later one, which is more of a coffee table picture book, very light on words, called I Am The Doctor, uh, done with David J. Howe, and that came out posthumously. Um, but still worth a look if you can get your hands on it. Very expensive, though. It's it's never been reprinted. Um, I'm fortunate to have a copy here myself. Great. No, uh, Moonbirds and Dinner Suits I have read, and that is a very interesting book, yes, definitely. Yeah. Rob, we've summed up the Perwee era, and we've really... There's a lot we still could have talked about. I mean, I could talk quite a bit about some of the directors of the era, people like Michael E. Bryant and Timothy Coombe, who do a really good job. Uh, we could talk, as we did a bit in our Terence Dick special, about the writers who get involved here. There, there's so much we haven't touched, but um, before we get into our emails, we are going to do our personal top five Perwees. Yes, and for me, Dave, it might be a bit cutesy, but I ended up picking one from each season. I did the same thing. No! Because I sat there and I thought, well, look, I could do the easy thing, which is just to pick the four season seven stories and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I thought, no, that's that's cheating. I'll diversify this by doing one from each season. So (laughs) there you go. Okay, fantastic. Well, who wants to kick off, Dave? Uh, Look... My pick for Season 7 is probably really obvious, so I'll let you kick off. My pick from Season 7, Dave, is Spearhead from Space. In a great season, I think Spearhead just pips it for me. A, because it's the shorter uh, of the, all the stories and it's, it's just more watchable for that. And B, all shot on film, looks amazing, looks like a TV movie. It's just fantastic. It is gorgeous and it is wonderful. My pick is obviously Doctor Who and the Silurians, my favourite Doctor Who story. I love the Silurian as a concept. I love them as an execution. I love the actors and the cast that are brought into this. I love the twists that go through the plot. I love the drama and the the big scale of it. I like the writing. This, this to me, is everything Doctor Who should be. I absolutely adore it. And look, the fact that Pertwee's first two stories in the role, really his first four, are so good, sets him up really, really well. It really does. Now, I went first last time, so season eight is yours. I suspect we may get a snap here because I've gone with the demons. Snap! (laughs) I thought we might. (laughs) The demons copped a lot of criticism in the 90s. And I think that's because it was held up as being the classic Pertwee. More because of the reputation it had amongst the cast 
than anything. The cast clearly loved making this story. They clearly loved this story, and it was sort of built up as being the best Pertwee. Is it the best Pertwee? No, it's not. But in the way that fandom does, they take it, well, if it's not the best, it must be terrible. No, it's not the best. It's just really, really, really good. Um, I've been to Devil's End. I've been to the village, and I've, I've scattered out. And uh, For a lot of fans, that is a pilgrimage they do. It is a story that really is quite deep in the marrow of a lot of fans. But, yeah, I, I enjoy it so much. The Demons, to me, is more comfortable pair of slippers type viewing like The Five Doctors. It's not a story like The Five Doctors, I hasten to add, but I get the same comfortable feeling whenever I watch it. The unit family's doing its thing, the master's doing his thing, Doctor Who is in a small English village, which just feels so right, and you think, oh, Doctor Who does this all the time. Then you stop and think, no, actually, Doctor Who hardly ever does this, but it feels so right in a small English village. It's just spooky and fun and wonderful i agree your pick for season nine rob season nine dave i'm gonna go with day of the daleks that's a very good choice but i've gone with the curse of peladon okay and and i can see why you've you've done that but for me day of the daleks just brings back happy memories of watching it on bbc video back in the day i think the time travel aspect to it is great i think the doctor's really on form there's some great location filming some exciting stuff happening and I think the uh, the revamped version they did for DVD with some new effects and such really helped the story. Uh, they even filmed some actual new footage of Daleks getting about on the lawns of that country house. Yes. I, I, I just think it's wonderful. It's one of the best uh, redos they've ever, they've ever made. Uh, it's not the reason I'm picking it, though. I just think it's a good, fun story. Look, I agree. I could very easily have gone the Day of the Daleks. I could probably have gone the Sea Devils. But I picked Curse of Peladon because of the excitement that I have from it. I love the world that they build on Peladon. I love all the different aliens. It's just a really good sci-fi story. Okie dokie. Your turn for season 10. Season 10 is the season I found hardest to pick a story. I went for the Green Death. Snap! Yeah, thought that would be the case. Again, I could make an argument for Frontier in Space. I could make an argument for the Three Doctors. Uh... Carnival of Monsters, I really love. It's probably not my favourite there. And Planet of the Daleks, I enjoy, but it's it's clearly not the best of the season. The Green Death, what, what can we say? It's the best of unit. It's scary. It's got Boss. It's got Joe's Departure, Cliff Jones. It's got a cross-dressing John Pertwee. It's got John Pertwee <laughs> doing the milkman and the uh, the, 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 the cleaning lady. Uh, yes. Plus his whole little surgeon off to Metabolus 3. It's... It's so good. It is so good. We haven't really gone into depth about the writers from the Pertwee era, but Robert Sloman is one who comes back regularly, works with Barry Letts, and they really knock it out of the park with The Green Death. Yeah, look, The Green Death, there's so much we can say about it. We touched on a few things briefly there. For me, it's one of those longer stories that doesn't feel like a longer story, and it's one of those longer stories. When I'm looking at the shelf and I'm thinking, what will I watch today? And I'll often go just back to the four-part stories because they're easier to watch. Green Death isn't one of those. I'm like, Green Death? Yeah, I'll watch Green Death. I don't care how long it is. It's just that good. Yep, I agree. Which brings us to Season 11, Dave. And I feel we're going to get another snap here because I've gone with Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yep, snap. Yeah, there we go. You knew that was going to happen. Oh, I did. That was no surprise. 
just a, a wonderful story. And again, like I just said about the Green Death, a longer story, but one that I'm still always happy to put on. And I don't care that it's a longer story. And that's actually rare for me in Doctor Who. Longer stories do put me off, as I just said. Wonderful story. Effects, okay. People talk about them. Let's move beyond that. The story itself is just really good. Spooky, deserted London scenes at the start. Uh, just great. The Doctor and Sarah just firing off each other in what was... The, that was only their second story together, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. Just great. A wonderful story. This was the season where I found it easiest to pick my favourite. Death to the Daleks would be the runner-up because that is an immensely fun and enjoyable story. But the message of Invasion of the Dinosaurs is wonderful. The characters, three-dimensional characters with motivations, uh, what they do with Mike Yates in it, uh, the, the the way that deserted London is used so effectively. And yet, look, some of the dinosaurs don't look that great. I still say some of the ones like the Triceratops and the Stegosaurus actually look pretty good. Um, it's the T-Rex that doesn't quite work. But we've used this phrase a lot this episode, when I say as a boy, but the Pooey era for me was about being a boy, being a young mm-hmm. kid. And sorry, when I was five, the Tyrannosaurus turning up to scare you at the cliffhanger or bursting through the wall of the aircraft hangar, that scared me. That that was a dinosaur. And maybe, maybe I was a naive five-year-old, but God, it was wonderful. And it stands up now as a story. Yeah, absolutely does. And I know uh, out there amongst our listeners, because we talk to them about it sometimes, there's a lot of love for this story. It surprises me just how much, as people come to watch this story again on DVD, they are learning to appreciate, and I'm really, really happy about that. Mm, Agree. So I think I've said everything I want to say about the Pertwee era. Pertwee's a great doctor, three great companions, lots of really good stories, but an era that just hangs together really, really well, and above all was just a big part of my childhood yeah and look an era which it seems we can talk to each other and say you know has it been forgotten about a bit more we're not sure and then we put out a poll and it seems that maybe it has been forgotten and people did want us to talk about it because this era does get lost it's not the black and white era it's not the tom baker era it's not the 80s under john nathan turner it's it's something else and maybe it does get forgotten at times and that's a damn shame because there is such quality in the Pertwee era. It's it's unbelievable. I am looking forward to more of his era coming out on Blu-ray and I think we're going to see a real boost for Pertwee's regard by a fandom generally when that happens. Oh, yeah, and, and how, how can that not happen? I mean, he's cool looking, he's got the gadgets, he's got the cars. It's, it's just such a fun era in general. I think that's a nice final thing to say about the era, Rob, but we have got mail. We have got a ton of mail, Dave. I'll kick off with this first one from Peter Dedman. He says, Hi, Robin, Dave. Just listened to your episode on the Keeper of Traken and your call for votes for next month's show. The four different Doctors you've listed uh, have their own merits and all might be interesting. The two I would be most interested in is a third and a tenth Doctor retrospective. If I had to choose, I'd go tenth. Oh, sorry, Peter, we went third. Well, actually, our listeners went with third (laughs) after that vote on Twitter. Uh, During the revival of the new series, I think David Tennant did so much to make the show as big as it was, and I think the height of the new series' popularity. I think he's got some great stories and some terrible ones, but he's usually pretty good in them. I think that'd be an interesting discussion point. Keep up the good work from Peter. 
Well, thank you, Peter. We will do a David Tennant special. I don't know when, but it is on our list of doctors we want to talk about. Absolutely. An email from David Clark. Thank you, David. Hi, Robin Dave. First of all, love the show. Just notice that Pertwee is up in your poll. My doctor will always be John Pertwee. I was four when he first took control of the famous blue box and my imagination just fired into life. Everything about Doctor Who at this time, including my dad saying this was the best show on TV, made my young self a committed watcher. I just loved everything about the Doctor, the TARDIS, the gadgets, the Master and the monsters. Not the colour because unfortunately we still had a black and white TV and that took Star Trek and me saying to Dad about the flashing colours on the bridge of the Enterprise to cause that to change. Dad was very fickle. (laughs) Memories that have stayed in mind the most are the sea devils walking out of the ocean, the green maggots, the master, first and original, always the best, and everything about the carnival of monsters. Oh, and Joe Grant's red knickers in the planet of the Daleks. (laughs) I was quite an early developer. I remember mostly being quite mortified when the third Doctor became the fourth, but luckily the Doctor was still in safe hands. To sum up, John Perwey and his Doctor with Unit, Liz, Joe, Sarah, Jane and the Brig was what cemented my love for Doctor Who. I really like other sci-fi, but as my late father said, sit down you young git and watch the best show on TV. I really miss my dad though, he was quite fickle. The old git. Cheers, (laughs) Dave. Lovely email there, thank you Dave. Yeah, a lot of good memories of Pertwee there. To the US now, and Bill McCann has written to us. Hi, Robin, Dave. In the closing moments of episode 139 about the passing of Uncle Terence, you each shared your five most favourite works by him, with The Wheel in Space being Dave's number five pick. With so much of this serial missing, I am resigned to maybe never seeing its lost episodes. I have no interest in reconstructions for it. I checked out a few recons a while back, and they didn't hold my interest. They seemed clunky or left me wondering whether they came close to hitting the mark. I would rather hold out hope that more lost episodes might be found, and if not found, then maybe released in animated form. My dislike of reconstructions and the effect they have is similar to when a new episode is spoiled. You can't unsee a spoiler any more than you can unsee a recon, not completely. There may come a day that it's a reconstruction or nothing. Until then, I'll pass. So, what's a fan to do? Well, for starters, let me thank Dave for mentioning The Wheel in Space as a favourite, because that sparked a search to find the story in print, and I'm so glad I did. This, from someone who isn't much of a reader. While I may have viewed Surviving Episodes 3 and 6 on a Lost in Time DVD, not until I read the novel did I realise that the previous serial, Fury from the Deep, saw the last of Victoria Waterfield, with just a brief mention of her at the opening of The Wheel in Space, which also chronicled Zoe Harriet's arrival in the Hooniverse. To quote the Ninth Doctor, Fantastic! The novel filled so many voids, many of which I didn't know existed. Again, my thanks, Dave. I found my copy of The Wheel in Space online in digital form on a site which is an absolute treasure trove. Check it out at archive.org, which calls itself a non-profit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Uh, There are 79 works by Terence Dix alone. Uh, About the novel, it was a fun read. Painting pictures with words, Terence told his story with death precision, and he did so without a single extraneous brushstroke. That's what I found most engaging. Never did I feel lost out in the weeds or weighed down with details that didn't matter. If you look up wordsmith in the dictionary, there's a picture of Terence, and if there isn't, there should be. That's 
all for now. In closing, I appreciate your willingness to mix things up a bit with how you focused on a single TV story in episode 140, uh, which made an interesting change from topic-driven discussions of Doctor Who. Both formats are great, especially with uh, such knowledgeable fans like the two of you. I look forward to your next podcast. Until then, happy travels from Blue Box Bill McCann III. Well, thank you very much for that email, Bill. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. Let me say, of all the things that I enjoy most about doing this podcast and the social media that goes with it and all the rest of it is when you do give a shout out to something that other fans maybe aren't familiar with or haven't seen, whether it's a new adventure book or part of the Hartnell era or something like the Wheel in Space novelization, and people then go and discover it and enjoy it. That's a really wonderful thing, and I'm really pleased that Bill had that experience. Yeah, and particularly glad he found a, a copy online, I'm guessing a PDF or something, because that that Target novel of The Wheel in Space is worth a pretty penny. It's one of the rarest paperback Target novels out there. It is, it is. Our final email is from Sheldon Carnegie. Hi, Rob. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sheldon. Hello. <laughs> I hope you gentlemen are having a great day so far. Well, most of my day has been recording this, so it's been good, I guess. <laughs> Want to say thank you for reading my letter on your last show. I'm officially famous, chuckle. I'm writing to share a YouTube channel I recently found. I'm not going to read the address, but we will uh, publish it on our social media, I think, Rob. Yes, absolutely. And people can also just search for it by the name you're about to give, I think. Yeah. It's called Clever Dick Films, and the entire channel is dedicated to this guy Richard's love of Doctor Who. Part one is his introduction, and he talks about how his life intersected with Who and how he came to love the program. But parts two through nine, he does a deep dive into each classic Doctor's era. He's really done his research and presents the video with lots of respect for the show. Of particular note is the episode about the wilderness years and what led to the Eighth Doctor's movie. The series is riveting and I don't know if I've ever heard you speak of this set of videos before. But it's so thorough, I can't imagine it wouldn't have come across your radar up until now. Just wanted to share and see if you both found these videos accurate and entertaining. I sure as hell did. Take care and can't wait for the next episode, Sheldon. Well, thank you, Sheldon, because I had no idea these existed. There's so much fan-made material out there, including on YouTube, and I'm going to go have a look. Yeah, Dave, I've seen maybe half of these and had done so uh, long before Sheldon uh, recommended them. I've really enjoyed them. Uh, This guy, as he says, Richard, makes little documentaries that I think are on par with things we might have seen on past uh, classic era DVDs. They're that good. He goes into a lot of research about the different eras. I um, initially dived in, I think, with the Davo one because I like the Davo era. Then I watched his McCoy one. Then I zipped back to a Colin Baker one and so on. They are really, really good. And I guess like Josh Snares, who we mentioned at the start of this episode, who makes great YouTube videos, we don't always name check these people all the time. I've never mentioned Clever Dick here before, even though I've watched them, because there is just such a lot of good fan material out there. It's sometimes hard to remember it all and mention it on the podcast. But yes, I can I can get behind this. If you go to YouTube, type in Clever Dick Films, you'll find this channel. And I think you'll be well served by any of the eras that you watch. It's really, really good homemade stuff. Absolutely. I'll check it out. And thanks for sharing that. Rob, we've gone way over time this month. We have, but I think we've tended to do that with our Doctor retrospectives and, you know, with good reason, I guess. Yeah, I don't regret any of it. There's still so much we could have said, but so much to talk about with John Pertwee. I mean, it is the second longest era of the show. 
Well, exactly right. There, there was a lot to talk about. But as you said, you know, we didn't go into the writers, the directors, behind the scenes too much. We could double this and still not touch everything. That's right. So this month we've talked about a part of the classic era, which we have done for the last couple of months. And both this month and last month, we've gone very in-depth on our topics. So next, next month, we're going to shake it up with something lighter and new series focused. Yeah, that's right. I mean, although we talk about New Who in each and every episode, whether it's in the news or even in this episode when we're talking about Pertwee, I'm I'm sitting there tying things you're saying back to New Who and so on. It's always never far away from our thoughts. But next month, folks, we're going to sit down and discuss our favourite New Who moments. Yep, we're each going to come to the table with five favourite things from New Who, whether we decide we're going to do specifically moments or a mix of moments actors and stories we'll we'll thrash this out over the uh, the week but as we get towards the end of the year i think that's going to be a very fun light-hearted topic that we're going to i'm already thinking what i'm going to pick and i've got some yeah i'm going to enjoy talking about this rob yeah i might go left field with some of my choices to try and uh not trip you up but maybe not have as many snaps as we had at this episode yeah absolutely no that'll be fun but until then i've been dave And I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be an edit. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at The DW Show. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.